Rural Health Voice, Episode 7, Emergency Medical Services. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. How are emergency medical services in rural communities transitioning to a new way of business that involves more interaction with patients and fewer lights and sirens? Tim Perkins from the Virginia Office of Emergency Medical Services joined me to discuss the future of EMS. So, Tim, welcome to the Rural Health Voice. Hi, Beth. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I wanted to ask you a little bit about a new division that the Virginia Office of Emerging Medical Services have, which is called Charter, and Charter being Community Health and Technical Resources. Why did OEMS see the need for this new division? So, um, actually, the acronym is CHATTER. Sorry to correct you, but ah. um, Community Health and Technical Resources. And um, yes, um, many people have uh, made the joke of how convenient it is that my mouth runs like nobody's business and they call it chatter. Anyway, um, so we've realized that healthcare is kind of transitioning from the traditional fee-for-service model, um, you know, the, the traditional you-call-we-haul type model to one that's more um, patient-centered, outcomes-based, delivery more, you know, like what we realize is, is healthcare. Um, EMS as a as a profession or as a um, system, not just in Virginia but across the country, um, we're we feel like we're positioned to fill in a lot of the gaps that that um, local healthcare and community services may not have um, on a twenty four seven basis. That you know, hopefully, will improve patient care experiences, um, improve population health, and reduce healthcare expenditures. Um, we're looking at at everything from um, disease management to preventative healthcare services, underserved populations, gaps in healthcare, um, and obviously collaboration between uh, EMS and other other healthcare professionals. And I have your job title as the Chatter Division Manager. Yes. What does that mean in terms of what you actually do on a day to day basis? So. Um, it's funny because I like to tell people that I have a Swiss Army knife of a job, and um, I, you know, I never am doing the same thing from from day to day. Um, right now, because the division is still in its infancy, we're really trying to um, to kind of get our feet under us and um, kind of put resources together and build our website and make sure that that EMS system is familiar with the idea that. Um, you know, there, there is a, such a thing as, as outcomes-based delivery systems, and the EMS is kind of transitioning to a different way of, of doing business, if you will. Um, we are um, rebuilding some work groups that, that have laid dormant for a couple years. Um, we're, you know, trying to get out into the communities and, and share with, with the communities what, what we're doing. And um, basically, in addition to that, I'm just trying to get um, some staff so that I can have more than one or two people under me. Does the chatter division manager need somebody to talk to? Yeah, more or less. I've I've been talking to myself for, for months and months. <laughs> so we um, just hired somebody to, um, to replace my old position as EMS systems planner. And um, that gentleman, his name is Chris Vernovi. 
He comes from Highland County, which is pretty much the most rural county in the state of Virginia. So he brings in a unique perspective um, on what we're what we're doing or what we're trying to do with the division going forward. And you mentioned outcomes based delivery system. What what does that mean in real person lingo? So it essentially means that we're getting away from the idea of, um, like I said before, the the you call, we haul, we pick you up, we take you to the emergency room, we dump you off on on staff, and we go on our merry way. Um, I think a lot of people know that that health systems are getting penalized by the federal government for um, readmissions and, and things of that nature. We're looking at working with health systems to reduce that, um, those penalties and, um, consider, you know, alternative destinations and, and things like that, where, you know, uh, a hospital or a medical, um, you know, traditional hospital, medical facility, emergency room is, is the destination for the patient. Hopefully, um, you know, a little bit more healthcare and less diesel, I guess is the best way to look at it. What are some of the challenges rural emergency services face that might not be in a problem in urban and suburban areas? So the the biggest problem is um, there's no really better way to, to say it. It's, it's a lack of resources. Um, as we have been out in, in the rural areas, um, I've been with the Office of EMS for 12 years, and we've done a lot of work in rural areas, a lot of studies. And what we've realized is that... Um, you know, populations in, in rural areas are dwindling. Um, people, you know, leave and don't come back. Um, and that affects the ability for your local rescue squad to be able to, you know, get out the door and answer calls 24-7. And they don't necessarily have the resources to have, like, a full-time recruitment and retention person. Or they don't necessarily have the resources to hire staff or they don't feel like they're in a position that they can call themselves a volunteer rescue squad and bring on paid staff. In addition to that, um, you know, there, there aren't any short transports in rural areas. Um, you know, there's usually 45 minute transport to the hospital or an hour or longer. And that, you know, takes a EMS unit out of service for that amount of time. And there isn't always the ability for you know, backfill or backup to answer calls in that in that community while that first unit is out running calls. So those are the biggest challenges. In addition to that, we're we're uniquely focused on um, the ability for agencies to be able to sustain themselves. Um, we want to make sure that that they're able to you know keep the lights on and keep gas in their vehicles and keep you know meds and and things like that. So there's a lot of a lot of challenges that. And I'm not going to say that these challenges aren't affecting, you know, suburban and urban systems as well, but it just seems to be more kind of in your face in, in rural areas. And it's, it's definitely a, it's a big hill to climb. Hey, Tim, say that last part again. You kicked out a little bit more what in urban areas? It's, um, it's the same, like urban areas and suburban areas are faced with a lot of the same problems, but it just kind of seems to be more pronounced in rural areas, it's more easily seen in rural areas because it affects the system so much, so much more. And you mentioned that some rural systems are dependent on volunteers 
and some have some volunteers and some paid staff. How, how does all of that work? If you've got, you know, people who may or may not show up if they feel like it, how does that work for a volunteer system? So um, most volunteer systems, traditional volunteer systems are, um, especially in rural areas, it, it's a, um, you know, a siren may go off and people go in their personal vehicles either to the station or to the scene. Um, some of the more, um, quote unquote, high functioning EMS systems will have a, will have a schedule where they have, um, you know, dedicated providers for dedicated times. You know, you might have a crew from 7A to 7P and then, you know, uh, a hodgepodge afterwards or, you know, some agencies may be able to fill their their staffing needs with volunteers. But we're finding, as I said, that, that um, populations are dwindling in rural areas. There's less of a desire or uh, a feeling of, of community need to be able to, you know, want to volunteer. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of obligations to um, being an emergency medical technician or an ALS provider that are kind of um, hurdles that the agencies kind of have to overcome. And they're doing whatever they can do and whatever they're able to do to be able to to fill those spots so that they can get their ambulances and, and emergency vehicles out when the when the bell rings. So if someone was interested in being part of their local community EMS system, what what steps could they do to say, hey, I do want to volunteer? What what qualifications do they need? Well, um, to begin with. Um, my first recommendation to anybody listening is to just go and knock on the squad building door. If there's somebody there, um, they'll talk to you and they'll explain to you what, what some of the um, responsibilities are. And the, the cool thing about, about EMS is, and especially in a volunteer setting, is it's not always necessarily a need for people to do patient care or run calls. If I, I keep talking to people about focused recruitment where you have people in your community who, you know, you may have somebody who's a retired accountant and they can help the agency with their finances. Or, you know, you have somebody who's a mechanic and would want to volunteer their time servicing the vehicles. And, you know, there's a there's a myriad of things that, that your EMS provider could be or your volunteer could be doing that, that doesn't necessarily have to do with patient care. At the same time, there are um, emergency vehicle operators courses that most um, agencies have their drivers go through before they're, they're cleared to drive. Um, there's EMT classes for those who want to do patient care all the way up to the paramedic level. And um, there's, there's plenty to do um, at an EMS agency from, from a moment to moment and from day to day. So with the courses you're talking about, I know for a lot of other types of healthcare providers, it's harder to access that type of training education in rural communities. Does that hold true with EMS? Absolutely. There's um, a lot of a lot of providers and a lot of agencies who have to travel, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to get access to um, EMT classes and EMT training. Obviously, technology has advanced to the point where at least a portion of, of the continuing ed that an EMS provider needs can be, can be accomplished online. And um, those kind of things are, are getting better by the day. But at the, at the same time, there's still um, a need for 
for face-to-face and, and hands-on and, and clinical time and things like that that just can't be done online. So, um, yeah, that's that's definitely a challenge that, that EMS providers and agencies, especially in rural areas, are facing. Mm-hmm. Now, I was thinking about the show. I, I was thinking back, you know, pretty much every TV show ever showed working EMS always looks so exciting. How, how does that <laughs> compare to the reality in our rural communities? Um, so, um, I'll, I'll draw from my own experience and, and this is, um, oh geez, 27, no, 28 years of EMS and most of it was in rural communities. Um, so yeah, it's fun driving lights and siren and at a high rate of speed, even though I don't, I don't condone that. Um, I have to say that as a employee of the office of EMS. Um, but the, the reality is, is that you see less, traumatic injuries in rural areas. I mean, and I guess it's kind of true anywhere. Um, you see less trauma and more medical emergencies. And, and the truth be told, um, a lot of those medical emergencies where you are really using your brain and trying to figure out what's going on with the patient and how to treat them and, and best transport them, a lot of times is as exciting, if not more exciting than, you know, what you might see at a at a car accident or, and I use the term exciting and it's, it's kind of warped a little bit, but, um, your adrenaline definitely jumps up a bunch when you roll up on a, on a, um, you know, multiple car accident where there's a lot of trauma, but those are, are more few and far between the more, um, you'll see more frequently, you know, your standard people who have a bug or who have trouble breathing or have heart trouble where, you know, they have had a long history of that and they just need a little bit extra health care than what they're, you know, able to handle on their own. And that's actually where the extension of community paramedicine comes in, where that EMS provider can treat that specific, you know, COPD or CHF or um, whatever their, you know, chronic problem might be that will prevent them from having to go to the emergency room, especially on a readmission. Okay, tell me more about community paramedicine. So um, the concept of community paramedicine is essentially what I have kind of mentioned in the beginning. I probably should have used the term community paramedicine in the beginning. Um, It is um, essentially a healthcare extender, for lack of a better term, to um, kind of fill those gaps in local healthcare where you know, you may not get to see Dr. Jones, you know, between 5 p.m. and 9 a.m. or, you know, able to get to the local dock in the box or, you know, community health center or something like that where an EMS provider can come in, assist them with medications or, or fall prevention or, you know, chronic illnesses and things like that. And, and as I said, hopefully make healthier patients um, in the community and reduce the um, need for those patients to actually go to a healthcare facility or emergency room. And as I said, especially for, you know, readmissions and things of that nature. So almost like a community health worker, only one that runs around with lights and sirens. Well, um, yes and no. The idea of community paramedicine isn't, isn't emergent. Like if we had a, a call for a patient who required the service of, of a community paramedic, it would be um, an ambulance crew rolling up on on a on a residence, but they wouldn't be coming lights and siren, um, unless that patient is having some significant you know medical emergency 
um, chances are pretty good that it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a hot response as we would call it. Um, but the 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 cool thing of it is is that um, you know your your standard advanced life support ambulance has a lot of medications and a lot of um, equipment that can that can take care of you know your chronic illnesses and and things like that. So we think that that uh, EMS is in a good spot to be able to like I said fill those gaps and improve the health of, of the communities, especially in rural areas. So looking at the equipment you mentioned, what about things like some sort of EMS connection to telehealth? Is that capacity available in our rural communities? So um, there are already um, um, projects and pilots that, that are being done and have been done. Um, I do know off the top of my head that, that uh, in the recent past, UVA did one um, with with um, stroke patients and things like that. I think that um, as technology improves, I think that telehealth is going to become um, a bit more prevalent. I think that that a lot of times right now, the um, the thing that's kind of holding a lot of that back is, is the um, connectivity aspect where, you know, you don't always have a great um, cell connection in a rural area or you don't always have, you know, a great Wi-Fi connection in a rural area. But I think as as that those kind of things improve, I think the ability for telehealth to happen in the EMS community will will definitely increase. I know that for care in a medical facility, the the payment structure, the reimbursement, the insurance co- coverage can often be very complicated. What about paying for EMS services? So um, uh, reimbursement for EMS service is something that that's not really very new, but it's something that that EMS uh, hasn't really put a lot of focus on until until recent years. Um, I think a lot of EMS agencies, whether they're volunteer or career, are realizing that that the practice of EMS and, and running an agency isn't unlike a business, and you know it costs money to get the vehicle out the door, and and as I said, you know gas isn't free and medications aren't free. So they're looking at ways of generating revenue, and one of the ways that a lot of these agencies are, are, you know, generating revenue is through billing. And there is, you know, opportunities. There, there are billing agencies um, all over the country and all over the state that that um, are able to assist EMS agencies in, in collecting um, fees that that uh, can be done through, you know, through your insurance and what have you. And um, I think that, that as time goes forward, I think that the standard um, traditional practice of, you know, the EMS agency is going to hold bingo events or they're going to hold pancake breakfasts or spaghetti dinners as a way of, of generating revenue is going to not necessarily go away, but it's going to give way to um, billing and um, recouping for cost and, th- and things like that where, the agency is is run a bit more like a business and really needs to to generate more revenue than than what they are. The big kind of fight with that, or the big kind of conundrum with that, is can an EMS agency still have you know volunteer rescue squad on their door or on their vehicles and and charge for service? And the answer is yes, they can have volunteer staffing, but you know, like I said, they need to be in the mindset of running their agency as a business and you know, filling their, their financial gaps in any way they can, including billing. 
And you mentioned that medications aren't free, which we all know all too well. I know that one of the things that's come up with the opioid crisis is whether or not emergency services should carry naloxone. Is this something that the Virginia OEMS is looking at? Well, the funny thing is, is that that EMS has been carrying naloxone for years. Um, I can tell you that from the time I became an ALS provider back in, well, I don't even want to mention it. Um, naloxone has been something that we've carried, um, you know, for years and years. The thing of it is, is that because of the opioid crisis, it's come, you know, to to the forefront. And I think that um, I think that EMS will be carrying naloxone for for years and years to come. Because unfortunately, I don't see the the opioid crisis um, tampering back anytime soon. Um, I th- I do think it's a positive thing that that naloxone is more readily available to the to the general public than it has. But um, I can I can definitely say that EMS has been carrying it for for quite a long time and, well, for a long time to come. And your naloxone being essentially the overdose recovery drug, um, you know, my understanding is it's it's much easier to use or maybe there's less potential for, for bad things to happen than, say, an EpiPen. Is that, is that correct? So it, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, nowadays they have... Um, you know, the nasal naloxone, which can be delivered intranasally. It's just essentially like, you know, spraying neosinephrine up somebody's nose. And it is it is a bit easier than um, your EpiPen or your, you know, auto-inject or something like that. The problem traditionally with naloxone is essentially the fact that it works. And I say that because you'll see patients that are, you know, unconscious, unresponsive, and you give them a dose of Narcan and, and they're jumping off the stretcher trying to, you know, put their hands around your throat because you've ruined their, their high or whatever you want to call it. But, um, the, the truth of the matter is, is that it, it works really well. Um, the, the nasal I think is, is really being, um, passed out probably as much, if not more than anything else. And, and, uh, like I said, it, it works. That's for sure. Great. What can people do if they're concerned about access to EMS services in their communities? What actions can they take? I think really um, the best thing that that the general public can do when they have questions about about their EMS system or about their agency or about the care that's provided is to communicate. Um, I think that you know going to the to the station and or, you know, sending a letter to the chief and explaining what the situation is and having some honest communication is the best way for, you know, issues to be addressed, et cetera. I also think that, and this is a tough one, um, I don't want to go so far as to say that the public has a responsibility to um, help EMS where they can, but at the same time, I think that the public should be aware of, of, the realities of their own EMS system and ways that they may be able to assist their EMS system, whether it's, you know, volunteering or doing, you know, some other tasks at the station or helping them to raise funds or, you know, what have you. But I do think that um, it's it's important for the public to be aware of, of the EMS resources in their community and to, you know, to get involved if, if, if they're able to. Now, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? 
Um, I would, the first thing I would do is I would like to see an environment where every single high school senior before they graduate at least has the opportunity to take an EMT class. Um, that's, that's not the standard. It's not the standard in Virginia. It's not the standard across the country, but, um, I do think that would be a good, a good first step. I got involved in EMS when I was a teenager. Um, I think that, 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 that demographic, if you approach it the right way, would be willing to, to, um, participate in EMS and volunteer, or maybe even make it into a career. Um, that said, we, we understand that, you know, the millennials are the millennials and they aren't always interested in, in volunteering or, or doing something without getting something in return. But, um, I, I think that that is a unique, um, demographic and a unique part of the population. Um, the other thing I, I think that, that rural EMS needs is, is, um, funding and resources and for, the localities that those EMS communities serve to be um, involved in, in EMS and helping them to, to survive and thrive. All right. Then. Well, thank you, Tim. We appreciate you coming on today. Sure. It's my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to have been a guest for you. That's Tim Perkins, Chatter Division Manager, encouraging everyone to talk with their local EMS providers and learn about what the needs are in your community. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, check out the Virginia Rural Health Association on Facebook and Twitter. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.